the evolution of the traditions is not just something that is historical. It's something that continues to play out in people's lived experience. In that um, individual, individuals engaging with these practices, there, there seems to be this kind of general arc uh, in, in people's personal experiences that seems to mirror or reflect the development or evolution of the traditions. Um, and so I'm not saying exactly that it's always that way, um, because I think lots of people can develop and, and cultivate all kinds of aspects of themselves outside of a, any kind of formal Buddhist or meditative context. And they can, they bring who they are to the practice. And some people bring, you know, incredible things, um, with them. Other people, you know, uh, they bring their own kind of concerns and worries and, you know, wish to be relieved from personal suffering. Um, which in a sense brings us to the first turning, you know, that's the basis of the first turning teachings, the first iteration of Buddhism. How can I be free of suffering? Um, what are, what are the, what are the, what are the methods, um, for achieving that kind of freedom or liberation, that happiness independent of conditions, um, often described in the early tradition as Nibbana, um, as Nirvana. Um, and then, um, as the tradition itself changed and evolved um, historically we can look back and say that there were these um, these changes to the fundamental approach or philosophy that certain buddhist traditions were taking you know where they became critical of earlier traditions or other traditions and they began to to say things that were actually different and and this is what has happened uh as far as i understand um, in the Buddhist tradition. So going back to the historical Buddha, you know, 500 plus BCE, um, what's shared there and transmitted orally entirely on an oral basis for quite a while, several hundred years, um, is no, what we know now as the early Buddhist tradition. But it's interesting is that it wasn't just one tradition. It became multiple schools. I remember when I was studying the stuff at Naropa, at one point, uh, I, I learned that there were 17 active schools in India um, at, at certain points and different views and philosophies covering all of India when it was primarily a Buddhist, uh, Buddhist Hindu country. Um, and one of the, only one of those schools is what came across to Sri Lanka and then to Southeast Asia that we now call the Theravada school. So that was one of the early Buddhist schools, but there were 16 other ones and one of, and one of them also uh, became the basis or the foundation from which the, these new kind of critiques and these new ideas emerged. Uh, one of those 17 schools was called the Sanantantrika school. And uh, around 200 CE, um, so 700 or so years after the historical Buddha was alive, uh, there's record of a very actually mythical figure. Um, there's not a whole lot historically known about this person or persons. Uh, writing uh, and teaching under the name of Nagarjuna. But what is known is that these writings and these teachings became a really important, fundamentally kind of new way of looking at Buddha Dharma. Uh, Nagarjuna is um, credited as being the founder of what's called the Majyamaka school or the middle way school. And um, the key text that really is kind of serves as the foundation for that is called the root verses of the middle way. Um, I remember reading Stephen Batchelor's translation of this again at Naropa when I was studying 
second turning Buddhism. And um, it's a very profound and interesting text. Um, it's considered philosophically to be one of the really important texts on the development of logic in philosophy. But what is emptiness? Because um, the second turning teachings, the second iteration teachings really emphasize this, this term emptiness, sunyata. Um, it is, you do find it in the early Buddhist traditions, but not nearly the emphasis uh, as in the second turning. So one of the important kind of key teachings that emerges in the second turning is the, is the emphasis on emptiness. Uh, when I was studying the first turning teachings at Naropa, I was working with a teacher named Judith Simmer Brown. And we explored a lot of the key texts and the key ideas and the key figures in the first turning, um, the, the original Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths and um, you know, all these kind of fundamental Buddhist ideas. And then as, as the class went on, we started to explore some of the later, uh, you could call accretions of the tradition. You know, as people are working with these stories, you know, that are transmitted through the suttas, these stories of the Buddhist teachings. And as they, you know, working with the vinaya, you know, the rules of monastic discipline, they also began to add a, a, another layer on top of these original teachings, which became known as the Abhidhamma, the higher teachings. And as in, I haven't studied the Abhidhamma a ton, but part of what's interesting about it is it reads like, uh, like a hyper-analytical um, kind of map of consciousness and describing, in a way, trying to describe all of the different cause and effects that go into experience. You know, what is karma? You know, how is it that one thing arises? What are the proximate causes for its arising? How does it disappear? Um, how does everything relate it in, in essence? And, and these Abhidhamma teachings are extremely detailed, extremely uh, precise. And part of what I left the first turning class, uh, the impression of what part of what Judith suggested is that in a way, the second turning was a re response, a reaction to all of this analytical and conceptual buildup on top of the original insights of the Buddha. And it was an attempt in a way to pull the rug out from under all of that conceptual thinking and all of the kind of reification of ideas. Um, and, and of course, you can see in the Chan and Zen traditions that, that came out of this Mahayana, the second turning, um, you know, the emphasis on non-conceptual awareness, on, um, on living practice, uh, sometimes bordering on anti-intellectual, you know, anti-intellectualism, like the intellect cannot grasp any of this. And yet, ironically, as I learned from another teacher at Naropa, the Zen tradition has literally the biggest uh, storehouse of texts of all the Buddhist traditions. Um, and that's probably because it emerged in a very literate um, place in East Asia. Um, but it's also just fascinating to consider that, um, you know, the, 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 the tradition that talks about no words has the most words about this. Um, um, and, 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 and I want to go back to this, again, to the teaching on emptiness, sunyata, um, because in the first turning, right, we have a kind of understanding of emptiness that's born of, of, of our observation of the three characteristics, you know, of seeing how everything changes, of seeing this fundamental dissatisfaction of holding on, um, and of seeing what happens when we, when we build a solid reference point in this changing flow of experience. You know, we suffer. Um, it's painful. When we let go, there's freedom. 
And so emptiness is kind of the freedom and in the first turning, it's like that freedom of release, of relief, of cessation, uh, of seeing that we are not who we thought we were, we're not this permanent fixed entity. Um, in a way, what the Majamaka school does is it takes that observation further, you know, it extends it not just to the self, but to the whole world, um, you could say. Um, and also the, uh, the whole understanding uh, of emptiness in the, in the second turning, it, 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 it isn't so much about impermanence as it is about interdependence, um, which is again found in the first turning. You know, there's the whole teachings on what are called codependent origination in the first turning. And, and these teachings describe the causal chain of experience that leads to uh, birth, old age, sickness, death, perception, you know, all these different aspects of experience. And, and the second turning takes this idea of codependent arising experience and it extends it to everything. It says emptiness really is a description of how there, we, there is no independent entities existing. It doesn't mean that we are not real, however. Uh, we are real insofar as we're co-arising with each other and our environment. But we're just this momentary, we're like a bubble, you know, popping up out of the, out of the river, you know, and eventually pop goes the bubble. Um, the, the bubble can exist apart from the water can't exist apart from the air. It's arising as part of the conditions of life. And so the, in the second turning, this idea of emptiness as interdependence, as interdependent co-arising um, becomes kind of central. And I think it's a really important thing to understand. There's a lot of depth to that. Um, and, and for me, it sets a really beautiful ground also for understanding the significance of things like social meditation. You know, that we're actually more intentionally leaning in with these, some of these inter, interpersonal practices toward that interdependent co-arising instead of taking our individual experience as primary and beginning the meditative inquiry from that place. Uh, the other thing that changes in the, in the second turning teachings is the emphasis that was always again there in the first turning on things like compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, equanimity, these four divine abodes, these four um, Brahma Viharas. Um, while that was a really important part of the early Buddhist teaching, these, explicit, these teachings weren't explicitly taught as a way to experience enlightenment. They could be part of it, like you could use them to develop jhana, and then you use that jhana to then investigate, and then you, through vipassana have insight, right? Um, they certainly were, were encouraged for a lot of different reasons, but all of those reasons had to do with like relative reality. You know, absolute reality is only accessible through this kind of deconstructive process of noticing the three characteristics uh, in the early teachings. That's primarily how it's taught. Um, in the second turning, the whole notion of compassion, karuna, is actually elevated and it becomes equivalent. It, it, as Shinzen Young said, compassion is conceived of as on par with wisdom. Both of them are equivalently important in the second turning teachings. And um, you can see in a way why emptiness as interdependence would necessitate this, even just philosophically, right? You're saying everything is arising with everything else. And realizing that leads to this kind of wisdom, 
this wisdom of emptiness, of letting things be as they are, then it also follows that compassion uh, arises from this perception as well. Because we see that our suffering uh, connects us, as Trudy Goodman say, our suffering is what connects us the most as human beings. It's the shared experience that we have of satisfaction, of struggle, challenge. Like even when everything is good, there's still, there's still some feeling that there's something off. And when things are difficult and challenging and, you know, collectively we're going through huge waves of difficulty, you know, then it's really obvious. <laughs> uh, it's just not even that subtle. Um, and so compassion or, or, or you could say love is elevated in the second turning. It's seen as it is equally important. And you have all kinds of references to the two wings in the, in the Mahayana tradition, the two wings of compassion and wisdom, that the, that the bird of liberation must have these two together. Um, as Joseph Goldstein, who, you know, you could say he's mostly studied in the first turning traditions, but he clearly also is influenced by other teachers and approaches. Um, you know, his, the way he described on retreat one day, he said, compassion is the movement of emptiness. Um, I love that. Compassion is the movement of emptiness, this recognition of our interdependence. When we see it, we're naturally moved to want to actually respond to suffering. We don't see suffering as like out here and over there, and I can somehow insulate myself from your suffering. Um, no, like insulation isn't possible in interdependence. Um, you can insulate yourself some, but the, the very act of insulating is also isolating. Um, so we cause ourselves suffering when we try to remove ourselves from each other's suffering. We suffer avoiding suffering as part of suffering. Um, and so the only reasonable response from the second turning perspective is to be uh, moved by the suffering of the world and, and to want to awaken to that suffering and relieve the suffering. And so here in the second turning, the real epitome of these teachings are what we could call bodhicitta, the awakened heart-mind. Um, citta meaning uh, mind or heart. And of course, there's no difference here in bodhi being the same bodhi as like Buddha, bodhi, bodhisattva, awake. The awakened heart-mind. And the idea here is that, you know, we, we can sometimes we'll have an experience of bodhicitta, we'll be initiated into bodhicitta, um, perhaps by our own suffering, perhaps by suffering we witness. Um, and, and suddenly we might feel instead of being overwhelmed by that suffering or feeling like we can't handle the suffering, some part of us, some deep heart part of us can actually respond in kind, can quiver and resonate with the suffering. Um, and we can tune into it and and not be completely enmeshed in it, but can actually hold it, like holding a crying baby, you know, being with their tears, uh, resonating with their suffering, knowing what it's like because we're human, because we're alive, because we're sentient. We're, we're, because we're sentient, we suffer. And um, with the first to second turning or iterations, you see the actual fundamental ideal in these traditions change. In the first turning, the ideal is the, is the achievement of what would be called the arhatship, you know, full awakening, 
Um, and the Arhat has, is the one who's destroyed the 10 fetters, you know, destroyed these things that uh, hold, us, hold us back, that keep us tethered to suffering, um, attachment to rites and rituals and desire and greed and conceit, these different things that kind of uh, get in the way. And the whole enlightenment journey is about um, releasing these fetters gradually and then all together so that we're completely unhindered and free, right? That's the, that's the idea in the first turning. And, and notice how much of an individual journey it is. I mean, of course, it happens in the context of community. It happens in the context of Sangha, but it's framed very much as an individual journey. But in the second turning, the ideal of the Bodhisattva takes the place of the Arhat and in these, these in, initial texts, you know, Nagarjuna's, uh, the text actually begins with the Buddha teaching a huge group of people, teaching all this, these arhats that have gathered and bodhisattvas that have gathered from all over the place to come and hear the Buddha teach. And um, in the first turning, the Buddha's um, one of key disciples, Shariputra, known as the kind of physical embodiment of wisdom, um, instead of being held up as like the, the, the highest ultimate realization in these second turning texts, he seems like he's an idiot. <laughs> he's like, he's not, he's, he's not there. Like everyone's trying to constantly catch Shariputra up on what a Bodhisattva is and how to let go of self-attachment, wrong views. And it's just such a, it's a, it's a very big shift. Now, here you have the emergence of this idea of a bodhisattva, which again, all of these things are seeds within the first turning. The, the original Buddha's past lives are said to be his, where he was a bodhisattva. So it's not that there's not an idea of the bodhisattva, it's just that it only applies really to the Buddha in the first turning. And now here it's like, well, maybe we could all be that. Like we could all actually be on a path of trying to alleviate suffering and, and try to share what we know. I like this description from Ken Wilbur where he talks about the Bodhisattva vow and, and, and in kind of simple terms describes what it is. He said, the alarming fact is that any realization of depth carries a terrible burden. Those who are allowed to see are simultaneously saddled with the obligation to communicate that vision in no uncertain terms. That is the bargain. You are allowed to see the truth under the agreement that you would communicate it to others. That's the ultimate meaning of the Bodhisattva vow. And therefore, if you have seen, you simply must speak out. Speak out with compassion, or speak out with angry wisdom, or speak out with skillful means, but speak out, you must. So, um, this is just a kind of really a brief overview of the history, uh, a little bit of the history and a little bit for me, what are the key points in terms of what uh, the fundamental teachings, how they seem to be changing or change from the first to second turning over these several hundred years um, of Buddhist history. And of course we know today that, you know, some of the, uh, these first turning teachings went, through over to Southeast Asia in particular, and then um, the second turning continued to evolve and develop in India while also going over through the Silk Road to East Asia, to China, eventually to Japan, Korea. Um, 
and we end up with these very different strains of, of Buddhist practice and tradition. Of course, this from India, these teachings go into, they become part of what's known as the third turning and go into Tibet as well, where they become kind of incubated for a thousand plus years on uh, the high plateaus. Uh, and now today in what we could call the fourth turning, all of these strains are, are apparent to us, both in terms of our historical analysis, but also the living schools and traditions that continue to um, carry forward some of these teachings. And so now we, you know, we're here trying to figure out, I guess, like what is the relevance of these things to us? Um, how do we relate to these different, um, these different paradigms of practice? And I think it's just useful being a contemporary Dharma teacher to know about these things, you know, to know that when you encounter someone who has a background in another tradition, you know, that they're going to be coming from very different assumptions about what are the ideals of practice, what is enlightenment, you know, what are the key things you should be looking for. Like these things are different depending on which of these, um, which of these turnings or iterations you're looking through. And so, and today with the fourth turning, it's really hard to even parse all that apart because there's so many pieces that have become amalgamated and integrated in different ways, sometimes ways that are really weird. Overall, I look at this really more like an ecology of, of traditions. You know, we have got this human family and um, we're all trying to figure out how to, how to live. Uh, and, and in some places and sometimes some of these things really connect and resonate with people and they, they take root and they become part uh, of our cultures. So not saying, you know, again, the, the hierarchy of the, these turnings is, is the only way of looking at them, although I think it is interesting to see them as developmental. Um, but it's also interesting just to see what, yeah, what teachings are useful for, for who. Um, and as a, as a teacher, you know, I think we're developing what, again, would be called skillful means, you know, teaching people what they need at that moment, trusting that there's a deeper process unfolding, um, that there's a deeper current of wisdom that, that takes us. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.